In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today is the third Sunday of the month of Abib, and in this Sunday reading we read the very familiar story that we read several times actually in the year about the feeding of the multitude, where Christ and the apostles were present with a large number of people, uh, and the, the people needed to eat something, and so the disciples told Christ to send the people away so they could find something to eat, but he said no, and he had a different plan, and he fed them himself. And one thing that strikes us about this gospel reading is the amount of uh, the amount that Christ was actually relying on the apostles. Even though Christ is God, and he, of course he performed a miracle that no one else could perform, but he was still asking the disciples to be involved in this miracle. So, for instance, at the very beginning, when Christ or when the apostles spoke to Christ and told him that the people are, you know, need to eat food, he told them, "You give them something to eat." First thing he said in verse uh, in Luke nine verse thirteen says, "You give them something to eat." Like, don't why are you looking to me? You do something. You do something. And then when he acknowledged that he was going to do the miracle now to them, he told them, "What you make them sit down in groups of fifty. Okay, he, he told them to do that. And then he told them what? And gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. So after he performed the miracle and the bread was multiplied, he gave the bread to his disciples so they, they could distribute it. And then also whatever fragments were left over, he also took the, told the apostles to go and to pick up these fragments themselves. And actually the person who offered the food to begin with that Christ multiplied was a young boy with the five loaves and the two fish. So in so many ways in the story, even though Christ was the one who performed the work or performed the miracle, but there was a lot of other work that the, that the disciples had to do in order for the miracle to actually work out in the end. If the disciples, out of their lack of faith, maybe had said, no, we're not even going to bother to try to distribute the food or to have the people sit down in groups of 50 or to, to even you know, to do anything at all, then, then Christ, the, the miracle would not have happened. And we read in many places in Scripture where Christ goes to certain areas where the people have very little faith, and he says he could not perform any miracles there. And it's interesting the way that the Scripture speaks about this. It doesn't say he chose not to perform miracles. It says he could not perform miracles there because of their lack of faith, that our faith is a very important factor in the miracles, and also our work is an important factor. You know, if someone, for instance, has uh, a very grave illness, they're not going to just ask God, God, for, you know, heal me from this illness without going to the doctor. Well, maybe God is actually going to work through the hands of the doctor to heal this person who is sick. But we don't say what we're going to push everything on God and we want everything in our lives to be a miracle without us doing our part and working. And actually, it was only through working with God that the apostles see the glory of God. It was only by working with him that they saw the miracle, that they participated in the miracle because they, 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 they saw it with their own eyes. And so sometimes we, we downplay the value or the importance of the, the everyday miracles that we see in our daily lives because we feel like we have a part to play in it. We say, you know what, well, this is the work of man, not the work of God. When we plan something or when, you know, for instance, we have a church with many different services and servants and things that are doing things. And then we say in the end, well, this is the work of man. We see all the people working. Where is the work of God? The work of God maybe is behind the scenes. Maybe the work of God is hidden. Maybe the work of God is not as obvious as sometimes we, we wish it to be. Here, obviously, the work of God was obvious, but the work of God would not have even happened if it wasn't for the work of man working with God. And so this is what Christ actually, he says about us. 
In Saint, uh, in in the epistle uh, to the to the Corinthians, Corinthians, First um, Corinthians three verse nine, Saint Paul is writing about us, and he's saying, "For we are the God's fellow workers; you are God's field; you are God's building." So he's saying we are the fellow workers of God, which is a, a very kind of high status for us to be considered fellow workers. God wants us to participate. If you think of all the, the ways that God has asked man to participate all throughout the creation and throughout the history of the church and throughout the scriptures, there's so many instances. For instance, after the creation, God is the one who asked Adam to name the animals. Right? He said, Adam, your job is to name the animals. God is the one who told Noah to build the ark. You know, if you think of how much effort and how many years it took Noah to build the ark, which was a very like advanced engineering at the time and all the plans and all the exact way that he told him to build it. But he could have, God could have created it on his own. He could have just said, here is the ship and you get on it and get the animals to come on it and done. Or how do we even know, like, how is it that Noah actually brought the animals? You know, we, we, we kind of don't know. How, how is it actually that the animals came and what role did Noah play and what role did God play and how did he bring the animals? You know, and where did they come from? So, so all of these questions we think of, this is God working with man, right? God is working with man. Or for instance, when um, God told Moses to go up the Mount, Mount Sinai and bring down the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments down to the people. Again, he asked Moses to do this. He could have just said, you know, Here's the tablets, and he gave it to the people directly. But instead, he asked Moses um, to do it. For instance, uh, when Christ was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? Christ performed the most amazing miracle, which is to raise someone from the dead, and yet he still asked the other people that were there to roll away the stone from the tomb. Well, why did he do that? He did the thing that man could not do, but he asked man to do the thing that man could do. Right? And this is an important principle for us to understand in our life, that God is calling us to do what we can do so that he will do what only he can do, the things that we cannot do. But if we do not do our part, our small part seems insignificant. I mean, the, the men who rolled away the stone from Lazarus's tomb, this is a pretty insignificant act. Anyone could do this, you know. But the thing that it demonstrated was not the strength of being able to move the stone, but it demonstrated the faith that we are going to open up the tomb of a dead man who's been dead for several days and he's going to be very smelly and, and nobody wanted to smell that smell and nobody wanted to go through this thing. But because they believed, they believed that Christ could do this, they were willing to actually put their effort into something that otherwise seemed futile and useless, right? And so when God asks us to work with him, he asks us to work with faith. He asked us to say, trust me and do the work that I ask you to do. Again, for instance, when he wanted the Israelites to topple the walls of Jericho, and he told them, just go walk around the, the, the walls and blowing trumpets, and then suddenly the wall will fall. Right? For the people to believe that this is actually the case, that we would walk around our enemy blowing trumpets, and then suddenly our enemies would be crushed, that our enemies would die, that the walls of Jericho would fall. Like, this requires a lot of faith. But God said, you must participate. He said, you will participate even if it's in the smallest way, even if it's just a token participation, even if from, in the, from the physical perspective, you're not actually accomplishing anything, but I'm telling you to do this and you will see the work of God. When God told Moses to lift up his staff and the Red Sea would part, what, what does lifting the staff do? It doesn't do anything, right? But it is the work of man with God showing and demonstrating faith that, that God is working and that we trust that he is working. So we are part.
partners with God. God has chosen this. It is not because he has to. He has chosen that we are partners with God, that we do divine work here on earth because we work with the one who is divine, because we work with God. So I want to just go over a few points of how is it that we partner with God? How is it that we are fellow workers with God? <coughs> the first example is with serving others, with serving people. And we see a very good example of that in the gospel reading today because Christ was serving the people. He gave these people all food that they needed because they were with him, because they were listening to him, because they were with him for so much listening to his words that now they are stuck here without food and they need something to eat. So this is part of the service, something that he was doing to serve the people. So God is the one who multiplied the food, right? That's the only thing that God could do. But the apostles were the ones who actually served the people, right? And this is the same in the church. Like God is the one who gives us the food. He's the one who gives us the spiritual food. But then he calls on us to share that food with others and to share that food with one another. For instance, Sunday school servants are required to share that food with the children that they serve, right? Or all of us as a church, as a congregation, are called to share this spiritual food that we have been nourished with every time we come to church. We're called to share this with the world around us. Right? And we, we look and we say, well, what is my small part that I'm going to do? How is it that my small part is going to do anything when the world is so corrupted and the world is so evil and, and you know, people don't know about God or the church or, or whatever? But actually, if you look at all these examples that I just mentioned here in Scripture, the role of the person was so small and yet it was still necessary. Right? That without the role of the person, the, the miracle would not have happened. So God is the one who is working. We can't forget God is the one who is working, but we are the ones that are working with him, and we are like his hands and his feet in doing his work. We need two important things in order to serve, uh, in order to serve people well, in order to, to join with God in the service of serving people. The first is, and really the case for all of these where we are working with God, is we need a relationship with God. How is it that I can work with someone that I have no connection with? How is it that I can work with someone that I cannot hear his voice, that I cannot do his work because I don't know what he wants me to do? Right. So that's the first step. Is I have to say, what is it that God wants me to do as, as a Christian in general and me specifically? What is the purpose that God has made for me? What is my talent? What is the thing that God has created me to enjoy, to want to do, and to, to want to participate in it? And I, I should stop hiding this talent. I should offer this talent to God, offer this talent to the church instead of just keeping it to myself. Okay, so we can't succeed in our work without this relationship. Also, we cannot enjoy our work without the relationship. Right? Like sometimes we, we get involved in difficult kinds of service and we get burnt out in the service because we start getting tired of doing the hard work that we are called to do, maybe to serve other people. Maybe even in a family, for instance, you have like either a father or a mother who's spending a lot of time serving the family and they start to get burnt out. They spend all their time serving, 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 and they just they feel like it's just too much for them. They can't do anymore. But actually, the enjoyment should be coming because we are doing the work of God. Right? We are doing the work of God. What is it that God wants? Okay, He wants us to serve one another and He has chosen us to, to, to serve with Him. Okay, So for my enjoyment should come because I'm doing the work of God, not because I'm doing the work of man. Secondly, the other thing that I need to serve people well is that I have to be active. 
right? Like I can't just be talking about how to serve, but I have to start something. I have to do some work. I have to start doing something with the talents that God has given me, even if it's something very small, so that God will bless it and so that God will use it for his glory, so that God can use it to serve other people. So I have to be present, right? I have to be present in the community. I have to be present in the church. I have to be present with God and standing before God in prayer and all these things to be close to God and close to people, right? Close to God and close to people. Another way that we partner with God is by preaching and, t- and telling people about him. In Matthew chapter 9, he says, he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, so what is this saying? A lot of times when we read this verse, we focus on the idea that, yes, the laborers are few, and God is calling us to go out into his harvest as laborers and to bring people to him, right? But if you look at it closely, it says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, which means that this even is a cooperation. Like we're saying, we're identifying that the people, the servants are few. We're identifying that the people that are being called to go and to minister to others are few. So our response should be not just to go, but our response should be should to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers because it is his own harvest, right? So our cooperation here is in more than one way. Yes, we cooperate with God when we become the laborers, right? When I become a laborer, I go out and I serve the people and I and I harvest the harvest. I bring the harvest, right? I bring people to the church. This is a service, right? This is a service that I do and this is one way that I partner with God because he is relying on us to do this, right? Instead of going out on his own and just appearing to everyone and having signs and miracles everywhere in the world in order for people to believe in him, he is saying, no, you do it. You be the sign. You go and you live a life such that is so remarkable that when people see your example, they will say, "There is how are you living in the way that you are living? This in itself is a miracle. Like You go be the laborer. You be the miracle. You be the one that is going to serve and tie yourself out bringing people to God. That's one way that we are partners with him. The other way that we are partners here is it says through the prayer, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So again, how is it that we are cooperating with God? We're cooperating with God, not just by saying, you know what, we're going to organize an initiative and then we're going to go and like we're going to try to, you know, evangelize or bring people to the church. But we're praying about it. Like we're, we're asking God to work through us. We're asking God to send out people that are qualified in order to go and to do this. Okay, so uh, preaching is one. And, and which leads us to the next one, which is prayer. In Genesis 20, verse 7, it says, Now therefore, restore the man's wife. This is when um, Abraham uh, was uh, took, uh, sorry, Abraham and Sarah, when they were in, an, in a region that was ruled by Abimelech in, in the book of Genesis. And so Abimelech, not knowing that Sarah was Abraham's wife, took her to be his own wife, because Abraham did not say anything. He said about her that she is his sister. Okay, so after uh, Abimelech took Sarah as his own wife, even though she was married to Abraham. Uh, God was angry with him and punished him and his people. Okay, so he's now God is speaking to uh, Abimelech. He's saying, "Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." Okay. So how is it that Abraham here is participating with God? So God is actually saying to Abimelech, go to Abraham and he will pray for you and I will forgive you. 
Instead of saying, you know what, come and, and confess to me and I will, I will forgive you directly. He says, no, I want you, I want Abraham, who is my servant, who is a worker with me, to participate in this service. And he is a participant in your repentance. He is a participant in your forgiveness. Go to Abraham and he will uh, pray for you and I will accept his prayer. Right? Which seems maybe kind of like backwards to us, like when we think about that. It's like where I think, was like, why can't I just, when, 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 you know, when I commit a sin like this, why can't I just go to God and, and say, God, please forgive me for my sin and I'm forgiven. Okay? And I'm not trying to say that we can't do that. And certainly we can and we should do that. But here God was giving an example of what does it mean for Abraham to be a prophet of God. That Abraham was a worker. Abraham was a partner with God. God chose him to be. And so he's now sending Abraham into the world and he's wanting people to understand and identify that Abraham is not just any guy. Abraham is a very special person because God chose him to be a worker, just like he chose the apostles. The apostles, again, were not just like everybody else. The apostles were given a very specific mission and very specific gifts and they were told to do very specific things and God was working with them, right? For instance, when uh, St. Paul was casting out demons, Right? It was something that was happening all the time. When another man who was not among the apostles tried to cast out demons in the name of Paul, he was attacked by the demons. He says, we don't know who you are. Who are you? Right? Like God recognized and gave Paul the authority and the apostles the authority to cast out demons. But it doesn't mean that everyone had that authority. Right? So here God gave Abraham this very specific authority as being the prophet of God. And so he, he asked Abraham to pray for Abimelech so that he would be accepted by him. Okay, so God wants to work with us, right? He wants to work with our prayers, just like as he worked with the prayers of Abraham. But it doesn't mean that, that we just do nothing and we do not pray because we say, well, well in the end, God is going to do everything, right? God is asking us to pray for a reason, right? He, tells, he told Abimelech, Abraham will pray for you and then I will forgive you. And if Abraham did not pray for you, I will not forgive you. So the prayer had a real effect. Sometimes we think that prayer is just kind of something that we do to feel better. You know, like for instance, whenever there's like a na one of these national tragedies where there's like a school shooting or something like that. And we, if you look on the news, a lot of people are saying, we're sending our prayers and thoughts. And I always think to myself, what does that mean to send prayers and thoughts? First of all, I don't know how to send a thought. I can't send a thought. Okay. I can think about things, but that doesn't mean I'm sending it anywhere. What people, what people mean when they say, I'm sending prayers and thoughts, it means that we care about you, that we're thinking about you, that you know, we're grieving with you. Okay, I can understand. Okay? But, but when we use the term prayer as though it's just some kind of uh, word to kind of console others, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not a consolation. Prayer is not, I'm saying that I'm praying for you because I'm, I want you to feel better, because I want you to know that I'm grieving with you. That's not the, that's not the, the prayer is much more than that. Prayer means that I believe that there is a God and this God is a powerful God and that he can do some action, some real work in the world through the prayer and the requests that we make of him, right? So, so to really pray means that I believe that when, when someone is going through a very difficult tragedy like this, that I want to pray for your comfort, that I believe that you will actually gain comfort through God because of the prayers that I'm praying for you. Not just a word that I'm saying that tries to make you feel like, yes, I'm with you and I know how you feel. It's different. It's not, it's not just a, a consolation, okay? It's a real thing. It's a, there's a real power there. So when we say that we pray for one another, it should be a real prayer. It should not just be something that we say in order to have people feel like, okay, well, I care about you and you care about me and we all feel good, 
Okay, it's a, it's a different thing. Because we are fellow workers with God. Meaning that the prayer that the, that the believer prays moves the heart of God. It moves him. It causes him to take action, to take steps. The things that wouldn't have otherwise happened are going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that there's going to be a miracle. It doesn't mean that these people who are sad or, or, or have you know, their family members or loved ones that have died, it doesn't mean that those people are going to resurrect suddenly because of the prayers that we pray. But it does mean that God is able to work in those people in some way that we don't see. We don't know. You know, we don't know exactly what God is going to do, but we believe God does something. We believe that God listens and hears our prayer. And so God calls us to pray for one another. And so we pray, not because God couldn't do it on his own, but because we are fellow workers with God and God wants us to participate in this service with him. And he wants us to pray on behalf of other people. Another way that we partner with God is actually by rebuking people, by rebuking others. Okay. For example, Nathan the prophet, okay, Nathan the prophet, when, when David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet is the one that rebuked him. Actually, when you read the chapters uh, that speaks about in the book of Samuel, that speaks about um, all of the steps that happen in order for David to fall into sin with Bathsheba, there's no mention of God at all in the entire chapter. There's no mention. There's nothing there speaking about like God was displeased with what he did or anything like that until the very, very, very end that it says God and God saw everything that was happening. Okay. And how did God choose then to respond? There was no point in time here when as this sin is happening that God like spoke from heaven and told him, David, look out. David, don't do this. David, you know, because David already knew what was right and what was wrong. And so when, when it came the time for rebuke, when it came time for God to respond to what David had done, he did not speak with his own voice. He sent Nathan, who was a prophet, and he told him, you have, you know, this is what you have done. And he gave him this allegory to explain to him what he did. What he did. And David immediately understood. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay. So, so why did God send Nathan? Right? Why couldn't God speak on his own? And, and even more so today, when we don't have prophets like this anymore that speak on the mouth of God, that speak his words, how does God rebuke the people today? God does not go look at people that are committing sins and come down from heaven and say, I rebuke you. Right? How does he expect people to be rebuked? Right? He, he, he rebukes through us. Okay? Now, rebuke is not the same as judgment, right? because a lot of times people get these two confused. Judgment means that I see myself as better than you. That's judgment. Rebuke is I'm calling out the action that you're doing as being a wrong action, right? I might even fall into that same action myself, but it doesn't mean that it's right. I condemn myself just as I condemn the action that other people are taking. But it doesn't mean that we do it in a, necessarily in a harsh way. Every, every situation has its own way according to our relationship with the people that we're rebuking. But the point is, is that it is our role to speak up against sin. It is our role to expose sin. It's our role to, to tell people that might not be aware that their actions are sinful, that what they're doing is wrong, right? Especially when there are people close to us, when people who will listen to us, right? Sometimes what happens is when people around us are sinning, we end up sinning with them. Instead of we being the one to stand and to say, you know what, no, what you're doing is wrong and I can't participate in it, right? This is, an, this is a, being a fellow worker with God, being the mouthpiece of God, being someone who, not out of hypocrisy, okay, not out of hypocrisy, but simply with genuineness and out of love to, to tell these people the lifestyle you're living, this is a wrong lifestyle, you're hurting yourself and this is a sin against God. 
Proverbs 27 verse 5, it says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Sometimes we think that we're showing love to one another when we avoid rebuke, right? Like when I, when I see someone doing something wrong and I just stay quiet and I don't say anything, we think that's the loving thing because in the end I don't offend my friend, right? But here what's saying what open rebuke, actually what, what are we trying to do here? The, the, the highest goal that I have here is not just to save a friendship. The highest goal I have is the salvation of the person that I love. If I truly love this person, that I want what's right for them, that I want salvation for them, that I want them to repent of whatever sins they're committing. So I do so, I tell them this, again, not out of judgment. I do so really and sincerely out of love, just as I would want them to tell me the same about myself if there is some sin in my life that I'm not aware of and something that I need to repent of and correct. The fifth uh, way that we are fellow workers with God is, is by being stewards, by being stewards of the things that God has created. <clears throat> uh, referring to the garden in, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. God's creation, what God has created, he wants us to keep. Everything that God has created, he wants us to keep. So even though God created the garden, but he wants us to take care of the garden, right? So we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to take care of this temple. He wants us to take care of our bodies. He wants us to take care of our spirits. He, he, he wants us to realize that we do not own our bodies, right? This is why suicide is a sin. Suicide is a sin is because I'm deciding to destroy the thing that God has created, right? It's like if I own something, then it's only up to me whether I want to crush this thing or not because it is mine, right? If I own something, I'm the one that chooses when to end this thing, when to throw away this thing, when to crush it, when to, you know? So if God is our owner, if God is the one who created us and we are only stewards of our body, then essentially we are here to take good care of what God has created, right? We, it is not up to me to destroy this thing. It's not up to me to... To, to mistreat it. It's not up to me to, to treat it in such a way that causes damage to it, right? So we are here tending what God has done. So that's for the body. Also for the spirit, right? It is our responsibility to grow our spirit, to help our spirit, to thrive our spirit, to, 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 to put, like, to do what we need in order for our, th our spirits to be nourished and to thrive and to grow. We are stewards. For instance, we are stewards of our families, as parents, those people who are parents, God has created us to be the stewards of the children that he has given us. Again, those children don't belong to us. They belong to God. Those children are not like belong to me, like I'm not their owner. You know, sometimes parents have a difficult time when their parents are starting to, when their kids are starting to grow up more and they're starting to have more independence. They struggle to let their kids go. They struggle to say, you know what? You know, now it's up to you to make decisions on your own. Now it's up to you to live on your own. Now it's up to you to, you know, do all these things on your own. And, they, and sometimes as parents, we want to just keep our kids as though they belong to us and they're ours, right? But that's not why God gave them to us to begin with. He, he, you know, certainly we enjoy our children. Certainly we love being with our children all, you know, growing up. But the purpose of parenting, the purpose of parenting is to create and to help nourish independent human beings that are then going to leave us and live independently of us, right? Because just as we did, just as the adults also have done. So the idea here is that we are stewards of those children, right? We are good stewards. And as a good steward, 
It is my responsibility to raise them in a Christian way, to raise them in the church. Even after the baptism, on the baptismal prayer, the commandment that the priest says to the parents is essentially telling them that by baptizing them in the church, you are vowing, you are vowing to raise them in the church. You are vowing to raise them to the church. And actually for those people maybe who are, are aware, it even says that you're promising to have them fast Wednesdays and Fridays. So just so you know. So we are stewards, okay? Good stewards of, of everything that God has given, whether it be ourselves, whether it be our planet, whether it be our children, whether it be whatever it is, we are good stewards, okay? The final point I want to say uh, regarding uh, being partners with God is uh, we are partners with God in repentance. In 1 John 1 verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is this being partners with God? Because God is saying what? Your job is to repent and my job is to forgive. You repent and I forgive. This is, this is the arrangement. Okay? If we offer a sincere repentance to God, God has promised us that no matter what, He's going to forgive us, no matter how horrible the sin that we committed is. This, is. this is the arrangement. But He says what? Even though I have the ability to forgive, if you do not repent, I will not forgive you. Right? I will not. I choose not to forgive you if you do not repent of your sin. Okay? So again, this is a cooperation then. God tells us to do the part we can do. Okay? We can choose to repent. We can choose to, to turn. We can choose to be regretful of the sin we committed and to confess this sin. But we cannot lose the, the spiritual consequence of this sin. Right? The spiritual consequence that comes from my sinning, I cannot touch it. I have no control of this. Only God does. Only God is the one who can say, I completely forgive you of the spiritual consequences of the sin. Which is why, if you're familiar with the, the parable, uh, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, the parable of the, the lame man who was taken by his four friends up to the roof and lowered into the house where Christ was. And everyone's expectation, okay, and what they were desiring is for Christ to heal the man, which he eventually did. But the very first thing that he did is he told them, your sins are forgiven, right? Because the idea that his sins were forgiven, even though from a human perspective, it seems like nothing's happened, it seems like a very invisible thing, that is a far, far, far greater thing than to heal the man. You know, maybe with modern medicine, that man who was lame at the time, maybe we could have treated him. Or maybe in 100 years from now, medicine would advance to the point where we could actually treat people who are paralyzed, maybe, okay? Any kind of physical ailment, it's within the realm of possibility that eventually as human beings, we might be able to treat it, we might be able to help this person and so on. But there will never be, no matter how many years of science progression, no matter how advanced we get, there will be never any time where we're even able to touch the spiritual sin, the spiritual bondage, the spiritual paralysis. There is nothing that I will ever be able to do to loose this, this, this bond on me. Right? And so when Christ, what he did is he gave him what he only could give. That he was the only person in the entire planet alive at that time, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who could forgive sin. And he told him, your sins are forgiven. So he received the gift that was far, far greater than when anyone was looking for him. And this is the same with repentance. When I repent, what God is doing for me is something far greater than I can ever imagine. Right? That my sin 
was supposed to bring me eternal condemnation and separation from God. And yet, because of God's love, because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, he is now able to say, you are forgiven and the sin is wiped away eternally. There is That sin is remembered no more, right? This is why we are co-workers with God, that he is calling me to repent so that I can gain the far, far, far greater thing. And this is a, this is a, um, a pattern that we see in all of these and all of these things that we are fellow workers. God is doing the far more powerful, greater work, and we are doing a very small work, and yet it is still a necessary work. So in conclusion, we spoke about six ways that we are fellow workers with God. The way that God wants us to serve, okay? He's relying on us to serve people. He's not coming and, and, and performing miracles and bringing people to himself directly. He wants us to serve. He wants us to bring people to him. Two, he wants us to preach, okay? He wants us to speak to people about him and about who he is. Three, he wants us to pray with him, right? That we are fellow workers with him even in prayer. We're asking for his kingdom to be done. We're saying, your will be done. It's a prayer. God could make sure that his will is done on his own without us. And yet he's asking us, he's saying what? Pray your will be done. That when we, I ask God that your will be done, God actually does it. Number four is rebuking others. When I, re I rebuke someone who is living in sin, this is also being a fellow worker. Number five is I'm a good steward of what the things that God have created. And then finally, number six, that I'm a fellow worker with God in my repentance. So may God grant us that we become fellow workers with God and that we work with him uh, and, uh, and that we believe that our actions actually have an effect, that we are not just doing this um, on our own.